Hello again, my friends. When Robert Draper of the New York Times recently asked Rose Sperry, a state committee woman for Arizona's GOP, to name the first Republican leader she ever admired, she immediately mentioned former Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy. She said, I grew up during the time that Joe McCarthy was doing his talking. I was young, but I was listening. If he were here today, I would say, get him in there as president. I also grew up during the time Joe McCarthy was doing his talking, and I was young and listening too. But I would never want Joe McCarthy to be president. My father, Ed Reich, viewed himself as a liberal Republican. He voted for Thomas Dewey in 1948, thereby canceling out my mother's vote for Harry Truman, and then for Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 and 56 canceling out my mother's votes for Adlai Stevenson. And he thought highly of New York State's Republican Governor Nelson Rockefeller and its Republican Senator Jacob Javits, neither of whom would last a day in today's GOP. But Ed Reich could not abide bullies, and he detested Joe McCarthy. McCarthy didn't just attack those he claimed were members of the Communist Party. His crusade against subversives extended into the mainstream of America and American politics, as he ridiculed the, quote, pitiful squealing of, quote, those egg-sucking funny liberals who, quote, would hold sacrosanct those communists and queers. Every time McCarthy's image came across the six-inch Magnavox television screen in our living room, Ed Reich would shout, son of a bitch, so loudly it made me shudder. In her book, Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America, historian Ellen Wolf Schrecker describes a movement that punished thousands of law-abiding Americans and scared millions more into silence, destroying much of the left and seriously narrowing the polit political spectrum. McCarthyism was the byproduct of the Republican Party's post-World War II effort to eradicate the New Deal by linking it with communism. In 1946, the GOP portrayed the midterm election that year as a battle between republicanism and communism. The Republican National Committee chairman claimed that the federal bureaucracy was filled with, quote, pink puppets. According to John Nichols in The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, Southern segregationist Democrats joined in the red-baiting rhetoric. Mississippi Senator Theodore Bilbo, a Klansman who had filibustered to block anti-lynching legislation, described multiracial labor unions' advocacy for civil rights as the work of Northern communists. Representative John Elliott Rankin, a fiercely racist and anti-Semitic Mississippi Democrat who helped establish the House Un-American Activities Committee as a standing congressional committee, called the CIO's Southern Organizing Campaign a communist plot and charged that it would lead to black voting rights. We're asleep of the switch, he warned. They're taking over this country. We've got to stop them if we want this country. The, back, the backlash was successful. In 1946, in the midterms, Wisconsin ended the era of progressive Republican La Follette's and sent Joe McCarthy to the Senate. California replaced New Dealer Jerry Voorhees 
with a young Republican lawyer who had already figured out how to use red baiting as a political tool. His name was Richard Nixon. In 1946, December 1946, at the founding convention of the Progressive Citizens of America, FDR's former vice president, Henry Wallace, saw the Red Scare for what it was. We shall repel all the attacks from the plutocrats and monopolists who will brand us as Reds, he said. If it's traitorous to believe in peace, we are traitors. If it's communistic to believe in prosperity for all, we are communists. If it's un-American to believe in freedom from monopolistic dictation, we are un-American. I saw we are more American than the neo-fascists who attack us. The more we are attacked, the more likely we are to succeed, provided we are ready and willing to counterattack. Despite Wallace's words, the Red Scare continued to gain ground, encouraged by J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the FBI. Soon after Frank Capra's loving ode to America, It's a Wonderful Life, was released in January 1947, the FBI, using a report by an ad hoc group that included Fountainhead writer and future Trump pin-up girl Anne Ayn Rand, warned that the movie represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. The movie, quote, deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters. This is a common trick used by communists, unquote, said the report. The FBI report compared It's a Wonderful Life to a Soviet film and alleged that Frank Capra was associated with left-wing groups and that screenwriters Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett were very close to known communists. President Truman bent to the mounting anti-communist hysteria. On March 21, 1947, he signed Executive Order 9835, the Loyalty Order, that ushered in loyalty oaths and background checks and created the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations. As the 1950 election approached, a Times headline announced that the left is silent in the campaign. Even the American Civil Liberties Union, whose roots lay in the first Red Scare of the World War I era, was reluctant to take the lead in opposing the threat to civil liberties in the second Red Scare of the 1950s. California Representative Helen Gehagen Douglas, dubbed the Pink Lady for her supposed communist sympathies, tried for the Senate in 1950. She survived a bitter primary battle, only to be beaten in November. By, Republican, by a Republican red baiter named Richard M. Nixon. On June 9, 1954, I sat at my father's side on our living room couch watching the Army McCarthy hearings. McCarthy had accused the U.S. Army of having poor security at a top secret facility. Joseph Welch, an attorney, was representing the Army. McCarthy accused one of Welsh's young staff attorneys of being communist. Son of a bitch, my father shouted. McCarthy continued his attack on Welsh's staff attorney. Welsh responded, until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. McCarthy didn't stop. 
Son of a bitch, Ned Bryce shouted even more loudly. At this point, Welsh demanded that McCarthy listen to him, saying, Let's, let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency? Almost overnight, according to the Senate historian, McCarthy's immense national popularity evaporated. Censured by his Senate colleagues, ostracized by his party and ignored by the press, McCarthy died three years later, 48 years old and a broken man. During the Army McCarthy hearings, McCarthy's chief counsel was Roy Cohn. Cohn had gained prominence as the Department of Justice attorney who successfully prosecuted Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for espionage, leading to their execution in 1953. The Rosenberg trial brought the 24-year-old Cohn to the attention of J. Edgar Hoover, who convinced McCarthy to hire Cohn as chief counsel for McCarthy's Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, where Cohn became known for his aggressive questioning of suspected communists. After McCarthy's downfall, Cohn proved useful to a young New York real estate developer named Donald Trump, who was undertaking several large construction projects in Manhattan and needed a fixer. Trump also needed a mentor. Cohn filled both roles. In 1973, the Justice Department accused Trump of violating the Fair Housing Act of 1968 in 39 of his properties, alleging that Trump quoted different rental terms and conditions to prospective tenants based on their race and made false uh, no-vacancy statements to Black people seeking to rent. Representing Trump, Roy Cohn filed a countersuit against the government for $100 million dollars asserting that the charges were irresponsible and baseless. Although the countersuit was unsuccessful, Trump settled the charges out of court in 1975, asserting he was satisfied that the agreement did not compel the Trump Organization to accept persons on welfare as tenants unless as qualified as under as any other tenant. Three years later, when the Trump Organization was again in court for violating terms of the 1975 settlement, Cohn charged to call the charges nothing more than a rehash of complaints by a couple of planted malcontents. Trump denied the charges. Cohn was also involved in the construction of Trump Tower, helping secure concrete during a citywide teamster strike through a union leader linked to a mob boss. Cohn introduced Trump to another of Cohn's clients, Rupert Murdoch. During Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign, Cohen helped a young Roger Stone arrange for John Anderson to be nominated by New York's Liberal Party, thereby splitting the state's opposition to Ronald Reagan. Reagan carried the state with 46% of the vote. Stone later recounted that Cohn gave him a suitcase to be dropped off at the office of a lawyer influential in Liberal Party circles. Speaking after the statute of limitations for bribery had expired, Stone said, I paid his law firm legal fees. I don't know what he did for the money, but whatever it was, the Liberal Party reached its right conclusion out of, matter, out of a matter of principle. In 1986, Cohn was disbarred by the New York State Bar for unethical conduct after attempting to defraud a dying client by forcing the client to sign a will amendment, leaving Cohn his fortune. 
Cohn died five weeks later from AIDS-related complications. In his first and best-known book, The Art of the Deal, Trump distinguished between integrity and loyalty and made clear he preferred loyalty. Trump compared Roy Cohn to, quote, all the hundreds of respectable guys who make careers out of boasting about their uncompromising integrity but have absolutely no loyalty. What I liked most about Roy Cohn was that he would do just the opposite.